Hey, welcome. Uh, so glad that you are here with us. What a great time of worship. And as you already saw, we are at the Seal Beach campus. If you don't know, we, we have a campus down here on the weekends. We do services. And uh, it's, it's a really cool place because, one, it's by the beach. But the other is, this is where Seacoast started. If you are not aware of our, our history, 30 years ago, we started in this little building. And it's been cool to see God just, uh, just work through this church and where it has uh, brought us over the last 30 years. But for me personally, it's cool down here because this is where I grew up. Literally, I was in this building pretty much every day of my life because my parents were working here and then on the weekends we were here. And so um, as we're doing church at home, this really feels like home to me is this has been a home for me for the for the last 30 years. And so if we're going to do church, let's let's do it here. And so it's been cool just having the band in here and being able to worship together. And uh, yeah, it, it's kind of special. So before I get started with today's message, I just want to give you a couple heads up on things that you need to know about. Um, we are beginning Holy Week this week. And a part of Holy Week is Palm Sunday. That's what we're going to be doing today. But also, um, we're going to be walking through Jesus' journey to the cross throughout this next week. And so we want you to join in with us. And we're going to be providing daily devotionals and, and videos that we're going to talk through what Jesus experienced every day. Day along the way. And of course, we're going to end in Good Friday and we'll be back together where we're going to have a Good Friday service and then we'll have Easter celebration uh, that, uh, that start, starting that Saturday and Sunday. So make sure you sign up, you're a part of that and you're involved. And then of course, invite somebody to Easter. We're going to have some evites that you can send out or just tell some people, send them a text message, whatever it takes. Um, one of the cool things that we've seen throughout the last few weeks as we've done church at home is that people who normally wouldn't go to church They'll watch church if it's in their living room. And so we've had uh, tens, of, tens of thousands of people that have joined us in our services. And so it's really cool seeing how um, even in this kind of unpredictable season, God is at work. And so if you're one of those people who are joining us today, uh, I want to give you a big shout out. Thanks for um, checking us out. And um, I hope that once we're all back together, you can come and join us in person. Also, we're going to be giving back to God. And um, even though we're not together, this is still part of our worship experience. And I just want to give a shout out to all the Seacoasters who have um, been so generous just in this, this season. As we understand, there's a lot of financial uncertainty. You have just continued to give, and, um, and we are thankful for that. And it really shows that uh, you have a heart of generosity. And so if you usually give in person, um, there's ways to give online. You go to our website, push pay, things like that. So lots of ways to give. Um, and again, thank you so much for, for being generous. So uh, let me give you a little background. If you're not a church person or if you, even if you are a church person and maybe you don't know what Palm Sunday is about, um, let's kind of start a few chapters back. And so what's happening is Jesus has been traveling around and he's been hanging out with his disciples and they've been watching kind of what he's about. He can do these miracles and he has these really profound teachings and he kind of has this authority about him where there's something special about him. There's something unique about him. And so there becomes this moment and it's a pretty important moment in Jesus' ministry when he's hanging out with his disciples and he asked them this. And it's in Luke 9.20. It says this. It says, who do you say I am? So people are talking about me. Um, obviously, there's something unique about me. Not everybody can heal the blind and, and is able to do these miraculous things. So who do you think that I am? And Peter, he kind of blurts out on behalf of the rest of the disciples, he says that you are God's Messiah. And so what he's saying here is a really big statement. Is these are Jewish men, and they're waiting for this promised Messiah, that God was going to send someone to the world to save them that um, they have been oppressed, that they have been enslaved. And so God is going to send someone to, to really transform the world, not only just save them, but turn the world upside down. And so when he says, we believe that you are that person, they're making a huge claim. We believe you're the savior of the world. 
And so Jesus, this is what is kind of interesting. Um, Jesus says, okay, yeah, you're right. I am the Messiah, but I need you to keep it on the down low. I don't want you to go out there and tell everybody and make a big deal of it, at least not yet, because I have some work that I need to do. And if you go out there and you kind of put me on blast, then everybody's going to know it's going to just mess up my schedule and it's going to mess up the program. And so I don't want you to tell anybody yet. Let's keep it between you and I. And he did this all the time when he would heal people. He'd go, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. It's not because he was embarrassed or anything like that. It's because he had a game plan. And we start to see what his game plan was just a, a few verses later in Luke 9:51, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he's hanging out with disciples, he's going around, he's doing these miracles. But then he, in some versions say, he turned his face towards Jerusalem. And so when the disciples hear that now they're heading towards Jerusalem, they're stoked. Because here's what this means. Is this means that what they know to be true, that he is the Messiah, that he's finally going to take the throne that is rightfully his, and they're going to be part of his crew. They're going to be part of the cabinet. And so if he's the Messiah, we get to be part of the leadership. And so they think when he heads to Jerusalem, it's because he's finally going to declare himself king. Well, Jesus, as he's making his way to, to Jerusalem, we see this attitude change that takes place is before people would give him this, these titles. One of the titles was uh, the, the son of David. And so on his way, and he usually just kind of ignored it and continued on and he didn't really engage. But on his way to Jerusalem, as they're making their journey there, we see that he heals a couple blind men. And when they shout out, son of David, come and heal us, he doesn't just say, well, no, okay, let's, let's back off a little bit. He actually says, well, what do you want from me? And in that moment, he begins to accept these claims of, of the Messiah. That when they say, son of David, they're saying, hey, savior of the world, will you come and help us? And he turns around and goes, yeah, what do you need? Yeah, that's, that's who I am. And so things are, are starting to kind of ratchet up a little bit. There's starting to be some tension here. Things have really turned into a crisis because what Jesus is doing here is he's really putting himself um, in the crosshairs of the authorities. Is when he makes this claim and he publicly says that he is the Messiah, this is kind of a do or die moment. Because you don't just go out and claim that you're the Messiah and then back off and go, oh, I don't really know. You're either going to become the king or you're going to become crucified. Or in Jesus' case, maybe both. We'll see. And so he, um, and so I know this is kind of silly, but one of the... Uh, one of my guilty pleasures is I love watching prison documentaries. If you're a seacoaster, you know this. I love them. I don't know what it is. And this kind of reminds me of like if you were to enter into the prison yard and you walked out there and you just said, I am the biggest, baddest dude around here. I am now in charge. Or they say, hold the keys. <laughs> I don't want to. Anyway, um, if you go out there and you make that claim that you are in charge of the prison yard now, you either better be the biggest, baddest dude out there and you really do claim it or you're probably going to get beat down. That's what's happening with Jesus. He's going out and he's claiming that he is the rightful king, that he is going to enter in Jerusalem. He's going to take his throne. And so he better be either the king or he's going to be crucified. So let's jump into Matthew 21.1. It says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And so the first half of the triumphal entry story, this Palm Sunday story, 
is the details of how the whole thing was orchestrated, which is kind of strange, is why would you spend half of the story just talking about how the story was arranged? Well, because there's a misconception that oftentimes we have, and especially when we look at those really cheesy pictures of Jesus riding on a donkey, and he got the palm branches, it's, oh, he's just riding in, he's like, oh, shucks, guys, not all this for me. No, no, that's not what's happening here. He doesn't just stumble into Jerusalem and people start to go, I, you know, I think this really is somebody. No, no, no. He has arranged the entire event. The reason why Matthew goes to such detail to tell us about all the things that it took in order to make this happen was because he wanted to point out that Jesus was not some victim, but that he intentionally walked into this. In fact, he arranged and orchestrated everything to happen. He sends his disciples in to get a donkey into this city, Bethpage, where um, is right next to where his good friends Mary and Martha were recently at, or, or lived, and he was recently at. And that town would have known who Jesus was and who this Lord is that they're referring to because he recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And so he had caused quite a stir there. And so when they send to get the donkey for the Lord, these people in the town know something's about to go down. Jesus, whom we already thought was the Messiah, is about to ride in and claim the throne. And so he's causing a stir and he knows what he's doing. He's creating some chaos and a crowd to follow him in to Jerusalem. And so it's kind of like a, a school scene, like when you were in junior high and there'd be a fight, you know, and people would go, fight, fight, and then everybody starts running. Well, that's kind of what's happening. They're like, Messiah, Messiah, let's go. Let's find out what's about to go down because um, they want to see what's going to happen. So um, one of the things that you probably notice right away as you're reading this story is the uh, animal that Jesus chose to ride, a donkey. Now, if I were the creator of the world, and I had access to any resource that I wanted, I don't think that I would be rolling with a donkey. Like, think about it. Politicians, celebrities, they're going in blacked out SUVs. They've got their crew, secret service. And Jesus decides, no, I'm going to roll with my homies in a hoopty. Why? Why would he do that? Well, there's a couple reasons. Um, one is the reason that Matthew gives us right after this in verse 4. He says this, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, uh, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so this is an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9 in which um, there were there were prophets saying that there was going to come a Messiah and this is how he would come. It would be on a donkey. And so part of it is the fulfillment of this prophecy. But I want to take a step even further back than that is, is why the prophecy? Why would God plan it this way? Why would he want Jesus to ride in on a donkey? Well, I think that um, if, you, you have, if, you, if you really think about this, and at first you may not see it, but when Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, he's changing everything. And that's kind of our theme at Seacoast is we believe that Jesus changes everything. And so in this moment, we really do see that Jesus is changing everything. He's going to change the way that we view God and humanity, how we define greatness, even the way that the world works. He is turning things upside down. And so one of the things he's doing is he's redefining greatness in this moment is we think of greatness as, as power and success and beauty and acclaim. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, nope, actually greatness is different than what you think. He takes these things that we think are opposites, that are mutually exclusive, and then he begins to put them together. He says you can be confident and yet humble. You can have power and weakness. You can have majesty and meekness. And so on Palm Sunday, he is bringing these two things that seem opposed, and he's putting them together. So on one hand, he's writing in, and he's declaring himself king. That's confident. That's power. 
And yet at the same time, he's riding in on a donkey, which is something only a servant would do. And so what he's trying to teach us is that, yes, he is the king, but not the kind of king that you and I are used to. He's a very different kind of king. He is a servant king. He's also showing us what our real need is here. His Palm Sunday is a, is a great example of the disconnect between what we think and feel that we need and what we actually and really do truly need. Now, it might sound a little bit strange, but when Jesus rides in on the donkey, he is showing us, or he's at least pointing us towards what our real need is. So they're, um, within this context, they're felt need. If, if you know what a felt need is, it's these things that you and I, we, we tangibly feel like we need, right? And so their felt need was pretty obvious. These people had been oppressed by the Romans. They had been enslaved, uh, economically oppressed. And so these people just wanted their freedom. And they thought that the Messiah was going to come in and that he was going to free them um, by being this, this political and military power. And so that was their felt need. And so that's what they thought that Jesus was doing when he came in. Um, but that's not what Jesus had in mind. See, what Jesus had in mind was he was going to address what they really needed. And, the, uh, and what they really needed was to be reconciled with their creator, to find forgiveness of their sins, to have hope for eternal life, that their ultimate need to conquer death and sin and decay could finally be addressed. And so what God does here, and he does this for us all the time, is God gives us what we would have asked for if we had all the knowledge that he has. And so he's really giving them what they should be asking for, which is salvation. He's also showing us uh, how he's going to meet that need. And so if you look throughout the Bible, our problem, the problem of sin, is that we, who are supposed to be servants of God, we put ourselves in the place of him. The servants try to become the king. See, that's the sin of Adam and Eve. As you go back to the garden, the whole sin of Adam and Eve wasn't just about this fruit that they ate. No, 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 that's, that's just part of the story. It really was their rebellion against God trying to become God themselves, trying to become the authority, the ultimate ruler of their lives. And so the sin ever since then has been each one of us declaring ourselves ruler of our lives and rejecting our creator as our ruler. And so if this is what sin is, if this is the problem of sin, then the solution for sin is that, the, is that salvation comes through the king who puts, him in place, who puts himself in place of the servant. So sin is, we are servants and we have put ourselves in the place of the king. The solution, the salvation is, the king comes and he puts himself in place of the servant. He's also showing us what we must do in order to receive this salvation. It comes through weakness, not strength. All other religions say that you can save yourself. Now, it might be through following these rules. It might be by doing more good than bad. It might be um, um, through, through some kind of discipline. But Jesus comes along and he says, the only way to be saved is to admit your weakness. The only way that you are going to be able to get this gift of salvation is to admit that there's nothing that you can do to deserve it. It is simply a gift, something that I have done on your behalf. And all you have to do is accept it. And so Jesus here, he changes everything. And we see that what he's doing is he's not just turning the world upside down. He's taking the world that has already been turned upside down and he's putting it right side up. Jesus is also the coming king. In verse 5 it says, behold, your king is coming to you. So notice here that it says in present tense that the king is coming. Not that the king has come or that the king will come, but the king is coming. He continues to come to us. What's referring to here is that Jesus has come and he's come to bring his kingdom to earth, that God's kingdom may reign. 
And eventually there will be one day in which he rules over every heart and mind. But until then, he has given us the opportunity to decide if we want him to be our king or not. If we will hand over the keys to our life to him or if we will continue to try to be the rulers ourselves. And he says that one day, once everybody has made their choice, and you and I, we make our choice here and now. Once we've all made our choice, we are going to see God. We're going to see Jesus return, and he's going to consummate his kingdom. He's going to, he's going to rule over everything, and he's going to create things back to the way that they were supposed to do. He says he's going to make all things new. No more death, no more pain, no more sorrow. And so we as Christians, we look forward to that day, and we're reminded of how broken our world is in seasons like this, where we see this virus spreading around the world. And so that's why this good news that we have, that there is a way out of this mess and that Jesus has provided the way, that's why we continue to preach and proclaim that Jesus has come, the king has arrived, and he has allowed us access into his kingdom. So let, let me go to the last part of this uh, story. Verse 6, it says this, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, the, uh, put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, so they're kind of like rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So if you look at the same story, but in a different gospel, there's four gospels, you look in John, in his version, it tells us that they have uh, palm branches, which is where we get Palm Sunday. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the, to, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So here's the, the last thing that I kind of noticed in this passage. And it's not just in this. This is whenever I kind of read stories of, of Jesus. Is Jesus is pretty confrontational. Like we think of Jesus as very meek and mild. And he's got this long flowing hair, kind of a glowing tan. And yet, when you read about Jesus, he's super confrontational. Like, he wants you to make a decision about him. He doesn't want you to just be on the fence. He kind of puts you in this corner, and he says, look, you're either going to kill me or you're going to crown me. I will not allow you to just simply like me. And that's like where most people land on Jesus. I don't know anybody who really dislikes Jesus. They, everybody kind of likes Jesus. But if you take Jesus seriously, he does not want you to just like him. He says, you either hate me because I've made these huge claims about the afterlife and about my authority and my relationship to the Father and that I'm God incarnate. He's made, so you either think he's a crazy person, that he's a liar, or that you really think he is who he claimed to be. He demands that we make some kind of choice about him. And he says, look, I know that lots of people, they come to me, and this is true then and it's true now, in times of need and they want Jesus to be their helper or, or their counselor or their teacher. And, and he says, look, I will be all of those things, but I will first and foremost be your king. And unless I am your king, then I am your nothing. I'm either everything or I'm nothing. And he confronts us with this. He says, I want you to deal with who I really am. So there's two types of people on Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday and I think even now. Two types of people who really didn't understand what this triumphal entry into Jerusalem was about. One group of people, they hated Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if people would explicitly say they hate Jesus, but I think they hate the idea of Jesus at least. Because what Jesus does is he threatens the thing that we hold most dear in our life, which is control, which is autonomy, which is saying that I am in charge of my life. He starts to threaten that. And he wants us to begin to let go and, in fact, to just give everything over to him. And that is the thing that we, we fight against the most in this world. 
is giving over our lives. And so there was people there who saw him as a threat, a threat to their autonomy, to their power, to their pride, to the way that they do things. But then there was another group of people who I don't think hated, but they just didn't understand who Jesus was and what he was offering. And I think they didn't understand it because they didn't understand themselves. They didn't understand their, their felt needs. See, Jesus came and he started to point out what their real need was, but they didn't get it because they couldn't get past their felt needs. I think that's kind of the season that many of us are in, is we are very aware of our felt needs, probably more in this season than we've ever been before, is we are aware of our, our, our physical needs. Maybe it's because we're sick or afraid of getting sick or we know somebody who is sick. We're aware of our financial needs, is maybe it's a lost job, a job that's being threatened, just economic uncertainty. Maybe it's the isolation and just this relational need that we have and we're experiencing depression because of it and anxiety and and our needs are at the forefront of our minds. We understand that we have these felt needs. And I think Jesus' message to us, like it was on the first Palm Sunday, it would be for the, this Palm Sunday, is that if you want to see something change in your life, and we've all seen what the something is, if you want something change in your life, you first have to give him everything. That's what he requires. Is he says, I understand that you have all these somethings that need changed. We all have some things, and it feels like there's a lot of some things in our life and in the world that need change right now. But before we even talk about all the some things that you need addressed, you're going to have to give me everything. Because we're not going to pick and choose what parts that I'm going to be involved in. It's either all or it's nothing. And see, that's how many of us have experienced Jesus changing everything. He's changed everything in the past. We've seen him turn human history upside down. We've seen him change many of our lives and continues to change our lives. But the only way that that's possible is if we allow him to take control of everything. He will change something if we give him everything. And so this Palm Sunday might be a unique Palm Sunday. Maybe it's the first Palm Sunday that you've ever even experienced because this is the first time you've ever seen a church service before. And we're glad that you're here. And here's what we do truly believe is that there is something happening Obviously, there's something happening in the world right now, and it does not take God by surprise. And it might be something that he's trying to get your attention with and that he wants to speak into your life. He wants to get your, your, your attention because he's trying to do something far bigger than just meet those felt needs that you have. He's using this season as a way to point you to what your real need is, which is a relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for, for this season as strange as that sounds, that we would be thankful as, we are, uh, as we're going through this season of uncertainty and, and, and maybe even pain, Lord God, because it's in these moments that we realize what, um, what not only our felt needs are, that we are not ultimately in control, that we do not have this all figured out, that life is full of uncertainties, and it reminds us that we need you. And so, Lord God, we, we pray that you would work in us and work through us in this next season. And as we reflect on Palm Sunday, and how you turn the world upside down or right side up. We pray that you would do it again in our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray.